This is Kinda Murdery Season 1, Ghost Towns of the Mojave Desert, presented by Criminal Content. You're rocketing down the 15 freeway between Vegas and L.A. It's a scorched wasteland of Airstream meth labs and unrelenting heat. This is no place you'd want to stop. But the car's on fumes, so you take the exit and you pull up to the gas station. It's abandoned. A concrete canvas that some local Michelangelo's turned into the Sistine Chapel of spray paint penis. A grave marker for every crazy story lost in the desert sands. These are the ghost towns of the Mojave Desert. And this is Kinda Murdery. Hey everybody and welcome to Kinda Murdery Season 1, Ghost Towns of the Mojave Desert. I'm your host, Zevin Odelberg. Thanks for deciding to be here. 77 miles northwest of Los Angeles sits a natural wonder of sorts, a locus point of four unique geological regions. The Pacific Coastal Ranges, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, the lower San Joaquin Valley and the Mojave Desert all intersect in the little town of Lebec, California. To a long-haul trucker, a Bakersfield escapee, or a Griswold mobile intent on vacationing, awareness of Lebec is often overwhelmed by billboards announcing the Tahone Outlet Mall and the approach of the legendary Grapevine. But the 1,468 people who still call Lebec home have a kind of murdery history that looms as large as their more assertive neighbors. In 1837, French trapper Peter Lebec was eviscerated by a grizzly bear in a nearby oak grove. By the 1850s, the U.S. Army, on a mission to find a practical rail route from Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean, built California's first interior fort, Fort Tejone, in that same stand of trees where Lebec lost his life, giving birth to a small civilian community three miles to the south of the fort. In 1895, the Tejone Post Office closed and was reopened in that same small community thereby founding the modern town of Lebec, named after the Frenchman who gave up his guts to a grizzly. And perhaps in deference to the man whose name it bears, ever since then, the town of Lebec, California, has enjoyed a 126-year history of being kinda murdery, pretty darn murdery, and absolutely, positively, Super duper murdery. That's fun. I like the idea that the history of the town is kind of bathed in uh, in blood there. And also, like, very specifically, they were like, this guy got owned so hard by a bear that we, ha- we owe it to him to name a, a town after him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, hey, everybody. You know, that, that voice you hear there is... My on-air producer, Adam Volrich. How you doing this morning, Adam? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, man? Very well, thank you. Very well. I am also joined by 
Sean Christensen and Brendan Hubbard from Criminal Content. Hey guys, how's it going? How's it going? And of course, and most excitingly, I am joined by none other than the host of the amazing and phenomenally popular podcast, The King of the Supernatural, and one of the kindest men I have ever met in my life. It's Hillbilly Horror Stories Genius, Jerry Polly. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Thanks so much for being with us here today. I am doing awesome, and thank you for the uh, kind accolades, which uh, most of are probably false. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's several that would probably dispute the whole keen thing. But uh, I appreciate the kind words. <laughs> well, you know, see, there, 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 Jerry goes telling us not how great he how great he's not, while simultaneously adding uh, beautiful humility to the rest of his wonderful attributes. Uh, so again, Jerry, I'm so happy to have you here, and you know. I just wanted to say I had so much fun with you last week when you were kind enough to accept me as a guest on your show, and and I I just got to say I I love I love hillbilly horror stories. I love the way you guys tell your stories. Uh, there there's just a wonderful uh, quiet uh, folksiness to to the way that you storytell that is a beautiful juxtaposition to these supernatural and often terrifying or strange stories that you're telling and it's so it's so fun and almost comforting in a way to to be scared uh, by you, it's like I, I get to simultaneously get goosebumps while while sort of knowing that I'm also going to just be okay. So uh, so thanks for that one beautiful listener experience. Well, I appreciate that. That's that's the whole point of our show. We want it to be uh, like a couple of people just kind of sitting around the campfire telling stories or sitting around the kitchen table after dinner just talking about what happened uh, to, to whatever the situation is. And, and we try to make it comforting. Uh, some of these things, especially when you get into some of the true crime aspects, they can be very unnerving. And uh, we try to stay away from most of those stories, but... You know, whether it be true crime or paranormal, there's a lot of history mixed into these things that aren't all, you know, they're, they're just horrible experiences most of the time, whether it be people who, who died in tragic events or whether it uh, be either stuff that happened just during the slave times. I mean, it's just a lot of bad history that involved uh, in a lot of these hauntings, I believe. And I mean, that's like the, the story we're doing on our show this week, which will already be out by the time this airs. We're actually covering every aspect of a satanic black mass in Mexico that happens every year. Wow. And, uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it involves animal sacrifice, and it involves uh, some pretty gruesome details and people giving their soul to Satan. to have, Like one guy, just because he has a bad marriage, and he wants his marriage to be better. My oh goodness. My, oh, my so, I mean, goodness. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, when you start covering stuff like that, you can go pretty deep and freak a lot of people out if you really take that aim uh, in your storytelling. But we try to tell it in a way where you get the facts, but at the same time can go to bed at night. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Well, that's a, and that's a, that's a convoluted sort of faith that uh, Satan is the one to make your marriage better. I mean, I don't know that I've ever heard that before. <laughs> Okay, guys, are, are we ready to uh, jump into Lebec, California? Let's, do, Let's it. do it. I want to hear all about the town that uh, is born <laughs> from Grizzly Attack. Today, we explore the grizzly-taunting town of Lebec, California. 
Taking a quick look at the itinerary here, it's clear that Lebec has plenty of attractions for kinda murdery tourists like us. First up, it's one of the most famous California killers of the 1930s, the first woman to be sentenced to hang in the history of the Golden State. She had five, possibly six husbands, fired a pistol at two of them, but only murdered one. It's the wild and truly tragic tale of rodeo champion sharpshooter Mrs. Nellie May Madison. Next, the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories tells us a kind of murdery, true crime tale from his own true life. We all know that an angry dog is the postman's arch nemesis. But did you know that ride-on mowers are a federal process server's personal supervillain? That's right. We've got mad tinfoil hatters, backcountry conflict, hillbilly hijinks, and a host held hostage. Get ready for Jerry Polly in My John Deere here says we don't want your darn subpoena. Finally, we follow the unfortunate fates of two foolhardy bank robbers. A story of good crook, bad crook, or actually good crook, bad cook, or maybe just dumb crook, dumber crook. Harry and Lloyd, let me introduce you to Casmer and Ferguson. All right, that's our itinerary. Excellent. It's March 27th, 1934, and Nellie Mae Madison is found in Robert Cuddy's mountain cabin near Lebec, hiding in a clothes closet. She's lying on the ground covered in clothes with just her feet sticking out. Like when the house landed on the witch in The Wizard of Oz, and I'm not saying she's a witch, I'm just saying that's how she's found. When they catch her, she has a 32 caliber revolver, a receipt for a second revolver, a partial box of cartridges, and a handwritten will. But despite all of these strange circumstances, authorities say she's cool as a cucumber. So what happened? It's time for the wildly true and tragic tale of rodeo champion sharpshooter Mrs. Nellie May Madison. So, so there's three stories we're going to, three versions of the same story that we're going to look at here. And a tale of historical telephone. You know, you all know the game of telephone, right? You ever played telephone? Yep. Right. Cool. So you you whisper one thing in somebody's ear, and by the time it gets through the third, fourth, fifth person, they're saying something just uh, crazy and hopefully hilarious, or possibly frightening. So three different stories, an historical game of telephone, and those three stories are. There's the story of the facts that are demonstrated by evidence told and proven in court because she was, in fact, convicted and sentenced to be hanged. The second story, and spoiler alert, but, but it is what it is, the second story is the story that Nellie tells a little over a year later while she's been incarcerated. She actually confesses to the crime despite maintaining her innocence throughout the trial. And then the third story is a story 73 years later um, told by a long or told by a Cal Poly San Luis Obispo lecturer who is promoting a book and that story was told to 
the Los Angeles Times in 2007. Um, so here we go. So I mentioned that she was found hiding in the closet in Lebec in a ca- in a cabin with the gun, with the will, etc. Well, why was she there? 24 hours earlier in the apartment building that the Madisons lived in. And the Madisons lived directly next to the Warner Brothers movie lot where Mr. Madison was employed as an auditor or an accountant. Late that night, the night before, there is the sound of five gunshots, possibly from their apartment. The neighbors get alarmed. One of them goes to the door of the Madison's apartment and knocks and says, is everything okay in there? Uh, Mrs. Madison immediately replies, yes, yes, everything is fine. Don't wor- no worries. And so the neighbor, because of how calm she sounds, is mollified by that answer. At this point, some other neighbors have gathered in the hallway. And what they all, dis- one of them advances the idea, well, we do live next to a movie lot they're probably filming a a gangster movie or something so those gunshots we heard (laughs) most likely it's like a it's like a james it's a james cagney movie (laughs) it's the classic uh no 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 i didn't kill anyone i was watching a horror film (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly or i was just playing call of duty right in in, in 1934 (laughs) yeah yeah so the neighbors decide that must be it. They're just filming a gangster movie, and everyone disperses and goes back to bed. The next morning, one of them sees Mrs. Madison leaving the apartment with a small package. Well, later that day, for whatever reason, maybe you know, maybe the gases were starting to collect in the corpse of Mr. Madison, and there was a smell, who knows. But the landlady gets a, gets a bad feeling. And she uses her landlady key, and she opens the door, and she walks into the apartment. And what she finds is the corpse of Mr. Madison lying on the bed, shot in the back five times. And scattered on the floor of the apartment is an empty bottle of gin and dozens of cigarette butts stained with lipstick. So it appears that... Mrs. Madison may have shot her husband five times and then sat there with the body drinking gin oh and chain God. smoking. <laughs> that is <Yeah>. so grim. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. Oh, so, geez. So, sh- shouldn't the landlord give a 24-hour notice before entering? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tenant rights. Ha- well, who's she giving the notice rest- to? The corpse? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Exactly. Well... It's, you know, it's probably at this point, you know, no less than 12 hours since the killing. And somebody did see Mrs. Madison leave the apartment complex with that small package we had discussed. And so uh, a manhunt ensues. And she's found, as I mentioned, in this cabin in Lebec. And she is arrested. And upon being arrested, they ask her about what happened, and she refuses. They, they, they again describe her as almost preternaturally cool. I mean, I think some of that description is probably probably a form of sexism where women are expected to be hysterical, and therefore the fact that this woman is very calm in the face of her husband's death must be evidence of her guilt. Well, that, that's... <laughs> if it if it appeared as though she hung out there for a while, chain smoking and and just just being around the body, she does sound preternaturally cool, to use your words. 
<laughs> well, you know, maybe she was, yeah, maybe, you know, although when sometimes when people are stressed out, they need a bottle of gin and, and a bunch of smokes, you know, just ripping heaters till she calms down. So she is arrested and she's arraigned and she's going to be tried for the murder of her husband. So here is basically all the facts that come out in the courtroom. Miss Nellie Madison, she grew up in Montana. She was the niece of a sheriff there, and she was a champion rodeo queen and sharpshooter. Additionally, and not that this should necessarily be held against her, certainly not in today's world, but she has been married at this point four, possibly five times. Depending on the account you read, uh, Mr. Madison is either her fourth or her fifth husband. When she was 15 years old in 1910, she eloped with a man named Brothers. She was tracked down by her father who annulled that marriage. Then, six years later, she married a man named Wilbur Vale Trask. They were married for four years, and she divorced him on the grounds that he had deserted her. And then, after 13 months after that, she married an attorney named William J. Brown. Here's something interesting about William J. Brown. Although he and Madison had divorced, they apparently remained friendly because when she was arrested, they asked her if she wanted her phone call or anyone to help her, and she requested that her ex-husband, William J. Brown, be called to come help her. To and be so, her counsel? Uh, initially, yes, she does hire two other lawyers, but before she hires other lawyers, she has her ex-husband come in to, to help her. Wow. Now, So, she's had all these marriages, but this is the only one that's ended in bloodshed. Yes, but... Ah, oh, there, there it is. There's a but. Good. <laughs> and this gets really strange. I mean, love will make you do odd stuff, right? Although Brown and Madison have been divorced, when she was married to Mr. Brown, at one point they were having an argument. She drew a gun and shot a hole in the roof of his car and then had to be restrained by his brother. Um, okay. Yeah, so she did it, fire a gun at at least one other of her husbands who oddly enough, wanted to help her out in the trial, and they both said, well, that was just an accident. But right. she doesn't... I, I, I think <laughs> if she is a, like, well-known sharpshooter, and she didn't kill the person she shot at, she didn't mean to kill it. Like, that's, you know, it's either an accident or it's a choice. Right, and I, Adam, I think the jury, a jury agreed with you. So here, <laughs> here is where it gets pretty, pretty wild. The, the defense that she goes with at the trial is that, wait for this one, Jerry. She says, I didn't kill my husband, and I can tell you why I didn't kill my husband. And that's because the man you guys buried as my husband, I didn't recognize him from Adam. Sorry, sorry, sorry there, Adam. Not, not you, of course. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, that was not my husband you buried. You buried some stranger. I have no idea who it was. The day of the murder, I kissed my husband goodbye. I, I never saw him again, and I don't. I can't speak to why there was a dead stranger in our bed, um, <laughs> shot in the back. But that's the deal. That man in the grave is not my husband, and you ought to exhume him, even though he had been identified, by the way, by friends of the family and etc. You ought to exhume him to demonstrate that I'm telling the truth, that that's just a dead stranger who was somehow killed in my house, and my husband is not dead. He's missing. 
But she That's also true. doesn't take credit for killing the stranger. She's just like, there was someone in my house who ended up dead, and that, and I had That's nothing to correct. do with, with That's, either. That is that is correct. Now that's kind of genius in a time where you can't really do like DNA and dental. You know, it's funny <laughs> you should say that because her defense attorney does say at the outset of the trial, although he won't elaborate, that I believe having heard uh, Mrs. Madison's story that she has the perfect defense, and that turns out to be the story. However, now there's some more details here that that are even more damning for Nellie Madison. So she had gone out two days prior and bought two pistols. The first was a Spanish pistol, an older pistol that turned out to be non-functional. Uh, the second was a brand new, beautiful Colt pistol. Here's what's interesting. Both of those pistols were 32 caliber pistols. Now, 32 caliber is a pretty uncommon caliber. It's not a standard caliber. It's a, usually it would be a 38, or it would be a 45, or it would be a 44, uh, a 32, or, or maybe even a 22. But, but a 32 is a pretty specific caliber. Um, okay. It tends to be a target pistol. Sometimes has a longer barrel, but I guess what I'm saying Something is... Something a sharpshooter might like to use? Exactly hey. right. Exactly <laughs> right. That She, she clearly you know was was skilled enough with a gun to have a favorite firearm which was an atypical firearm Mm -hmm. so and by the way mr madison was shot five times with a 32 caliber revolver um so she went and bought this old spanish 32 caliber revolver it was non-functional so she then took it to another gun shop to ask them if they could repair it they said, sorry, we don't have a gunsmith on site. And that's when she purchases this new Colt 32. And the story. Wait, sorry. And, he, and he was shot with 32 or 35, did you say? Thir- 32 caliber. Same, oh, same, okay, okay. same. Yeah, yes, yes. All and right. and, and they, when they found her up at the cabin, they found her with the non functional Spanish pistol and a receipt for the Colt, but not the Colt. The Colt was never found. All right, um, well, check, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> right. Anyway, so in the courtroom, she goes with the "it's not my husband who's dead" defense. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the prosecution manages to get the bed that her husband was shot in brought into the courtroom, so that the jury can see that it's riddled with holes. Um, it's also noted by the coroner that the man was shot repeatedly in the back. And it's further noted by the coroner that the husband was clearly medically not, had not been drinking. Um, because okay. the, body was, the body was found so shortly after the murder that he was able to say that, in case you were wondering, this corpse was not intoxicated. Okay, so long story short, she is convicted... And the jury has to look at whether it was premeditated first-degree murder, whether it was second-degree murder, and they're also asked a recommendation of leniency or not. Because she is, at this point, the prosecution has asked for the death penalty. 
Uh, there's a lot of public opposition to the very idea of hanging a woman. A woman has never been hanged in the state of California before. I believe only one other woman was scheduled to be hanged in the United States. That was a woman in New York who had chopped up her husband with an axe, but her execution was commuted when new facts came forward about an accomplice. Hmm. But when the jury comes back with a verdict of guilty and no recommendation of leniency, that, that actually requires the judge to impose the maximum sentence. And so Nellie hmm. Mae Madison is sentenced to be hanged. Wow. Now, this is in uh, May of 1934. So she goes to, to prison. She goes to jail before being transferred to essentially death row at a Tehachapi uh, women's prison. At this point, she's also become a, a national celebrity. And uh, when she leaves the jail to be transferred to Tehachapi, it's said that all of the jail matrons come out to see her off and they're all crying and they all love her. Time passes. She's scheduled to be executed in September of 1935. Well, in June of 1935, and this is why I called it a tale of three stories, all of a sudden, after maintaining her innocence the entire time and no part of her defense mentioning any kind of unhappiness in the marriage... Nellie Mae Madison suddenly confesses to murdering her husband. Interesting. She says, I did it, and here's why I did it. And the story that she tells this time is very different than any story we've ever heard before. Uh, it's notable that Nellie Mae Madison is notable particularly at the time. Here she is on her fourth, possibly fifth marriage. She's, on she's 38 years old, and she's never had children. And so uh, scholars today would note that that made her a particularly suspicious uh, uh, figure, especially to people then, because she, she her, the definition of her fell outside of the norms of, of normal womanhood that people were comfortable with. Right. You uh, only have one right. husband and several children, not, not several husbands and no children. Right, and people that make that point are implying something like the like a witch hunt. You know, back in Salem, very often the witches were single women who owned property. I mean, right? <laughs> there's yeah. clearly another another motive there. Yeah, um, of course. So, so here's what she says. She says it was two days before the murder, um, and my husband said to me, "Well, honey, why don't you go out and see a movie?" And so she hops in the car and she's going to see a movie. Um, and she doesn't get very far when she starts to feel very ill. So she turns around and she goes home and she walks into her house and she finds him in flagrante delecto with a 16 year old girl. Oh no. He flies into a rage. The 16 year old girl basically says, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me and runs off. The husband says, you know, how dare you spy on me? And she says, I wasn't spying on you. I just didn't feel well. I came home. And, you know, and, and she says, how could you do this to me? I, I love you. We're married. And he goes, he says, and this is in her, her typed her confession. He says, well, actually, you know what? We're not even really married. You were due to inherit $1,000 when I met you from your dead sheriff uncle, and I just wanted your money. So I paid a friend of mine to impersonate a minister 
so we're never even really married. And why the hell would I marry an old woman like you when I have access to all these young hotties? Jesus. That's what, she, right, that, that's, what, that's, what he, that's what he told her, oh, uh, according God. to Nellie. Yes. And so then, and she's crying and, and really upset, and, and he starts choking her and beating her. And, and, and she says, he blacked my eyes so badly that it was visible for over a week afterwards. Oh, boy. So, no, so obviously there's never an excuse for domestic violence, and this story has taken a very dark turn. But there are also pieces of it that don't necessarily line up with the facts of what has previously happened. Uh, one of them being that she testifies a couple days before she killed him that he beat her so badly that the, the signs of it were obvious for a week. Uh, but there's never a mention of her uh, showing any signs of having been beaten. Most notably, there's no signs of her having been beaten, or at least that are mentioned, when she's found hiding in the closet in Lebek. Which, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, certainly, I certainly never want to doubt a victim, but I also feel like if, you, if people believe that you've murdered your husband and they find you hiding in a closet and you're quite obviously clear, badly beaten... That, that that would be something that would be mentioned because, for one thing, it makes you a far more sympathetic figure to anyone. We found her hiding in the closet. She apparently killed her husband, but the poor woman was beaten within an inch of her life. I mean, that, that would be something that would certainly be brought out in her defense at the trial. What she says is, he, he scared me so badly that I went out and I bought a gun to protect myself. She buys the two guns and she goes home. They are then, a couple days later, the night of the murder, he forces her physically to write a note that says, basically, I, I know that we were never married and I I'm sorry, honey, that I was uh, cheating on you and stepping out on you all the time. So he makes it her fault. Huh. She then is very embarrassed by writing this note and she wants the note back. And she says that her desire to have the note back is why she pulls a gun on him. At which point, quoting her in the newspaper here, she says, My husband grabbed a knife and threw a knife at me. And I knew that he was very clever with knives. So when he turned to grab another knife to throw at me, I, I closed my eyes and I fired twice. And that knife missed... And then I, and then I fired three more times with my eyes closed. And, that's, and he slumped over a chair... And he said, don't let anybody come in here. I didn't think he was that badly injured, but then he died. So she, well, I'm just thinking for a moment that if her eyes have been, quote, blackened so badly that it lasts for a week, I mean, theoretically, they would be a bit too swollen to see anything. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It just seems all... Also, right. how is he throwing a knife if his back is turned? Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> and, so and, he, and yes. also, so he's a, he's a target knife thrower. She's a target shooter. <laughs> yeah, it's a match yeah, made a, in heaven, really. Right, right. Well, that's... Uh, yeah, exactly. And I wanted to editorialize there a little bit. Um, it is really freaking hard to throw a knife. The only people who, who are expert, like, t target knife throwers are, are circus performers and ninjas. Um, <laughs> you know, like a litter... <laughs> So, so, um, meanwhile, this guy was a, a movie studio accountant 
who, who by all accounts of the people who knew Slash him. Slash Stuntman, right? That's where he gets right. the knife training yeah. from? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> by all accounts of the people who knew him, was, was mild-mannered. Um, and, but now he's a, now he's a uh, circus-performing ninja who can, who can throw multiple knives while being shot at. Um, okay, all right. right. So he's and, a... Uh, what's the phrase I used last time? I am but a humble accountant slash assassin. Like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's also worth noting when this story comes out that the, 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 all the investigators at the time say, well, there was never any evidence because she says one of the knives grazed her shoulder. There's no evidence that there, she had no cut on her shoulder. There was no evidence of, we didn't find any knives. There was no damage in the wall where a knife may have stuck in. There's no, there's no physical evidence whatsoever that there was ever any knife throwing happening. And, mm-hmm. so, and I also thought, right, like how do you get shot in the back while throwing knives? Like is, is, is he such a talented performer that he had his back to her flicking knives over his back and, and managing to nearly hit her with them it's just you know pretty wild um and then she goes on to say and they ask her of course basically well why didn't you use any of this in the trial how why didn't your lawyer bring any of this up and she basically said my lawyers were men who would never understand me and they didn't want me to bring any of this up because i've been married so many times that they felt like it would just take us down a terrible road in terms of my character of course, the fact that she'd been married so many times already came out in court. The fact that she'd fired a gun at one of her previous husbands already came out in court. So I'm not sure that explanation really washes either. When her attorney hears her confession, he's shocked. He says, I've never heard a word of this. She's always, <laughs> she's always maintained her innocence to me. Uh, I really want to save her from the gallows, and I think we ought to have her psychiatrically examined. Uh, because perhaps we can save her life that way, because this story is just cuckoo bananas. That's what her her attorney says. Her attorney says this story is cuckoo bananas? Well, I, I gave that the Zevin treatment. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> but but, but either does... way, there's not much faith that, faith that there's any accuracy to, uh, to what's going on here. Yes. As I said, it's a tale of three stories. Fast forward to 2007. And there's an article published in the L.A. Times, 2007, not long ago, not long ago. There's an article published in the L.A. Times that the headline is Unwitting Pioneer of the Battered Woman Defense. And again, Mm. you know, I want to make it clear there's never an excuse for domestic violence. And famously, Sherlock Holmes said, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever's left, no matter how improbable, is the truth so the fact that her story seems wildly improbable based on the the previous facts of the case tried in court doesn't necessarily mean it's not true um but with that disclaimer i will point out that the story published in the la times is the facts of the case as told by a lecturer at cal poly san luis obispo who is currently promoting a book about Nellie Mae Madison. And the version of the story told in the LA Times and told, by the way, just as historical fact with no, with no um, reference to any other um, 
any other timeline or version of events is essentially Nellie Madison's story with some facts missing. And the facts missing, even from what the, the story that Nellie Madison told, are the ones that conflict most directly with what was established in court. Um, so the story told by the lecturer from Cal, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and then related to the LA Times is similar to the one that Nellie Madison told, except that now the fight she had with her husband was much earlier in March. So to basically to give her enough time for the signs of her abuse to have disappeared. And here is how there, there's no mention of the fact that the coroner testified that the husband was not drunk because in Nellie Madison's story, he was blind drunk and in a rage when she killed him. The coroner at the time said he was not drunk. Uh, there's no mention of that. Here is how the story in the LA Times is told by the Cal Poly lecturer explains how it's possible to shoot someone in the back while they're throwing knives at you. <laughs> so they actually get an expert to explain that one, do they? Yeah, yeah. And, and how it's possible for someone who was throwing knives at you to end up face down, shot five times in the back on their own bed. So the story, the story now has become uh, Mr. Madison was lying in bed and starts to fight with his wife about um she she wants that she wants that embarrassing note back and they get into this giant fight and, and she pulls a gun on him at which point he reaches down under his bed and pulls out a box and I'm quoting a box of butcher knives I'm not aware that a box of butcher knives is a thing um if it is <laughs> I've never seen one I mean, I keep one under my bed at all times. So, <laughs> so, 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 according to the 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 Cal Poly lecturer and and by extension the L.A. Times, that he keeps a box of butcher knives under his bed. So he and he's lying prone in the bed. So she pulls the gun. He leans over. He leans over to pick up to to grab a butcher knife out of the box under his bed thereby turning his back to to uh Nelly comes back throws a butcher knife at her which she says grazes her shoulder but again no evidence of knives or any like knife like damage anywhere in the apartment but she says it grazes her shoulder and again it mentions that he was in like an expert knife thrower slash studio accountant and when he goes for the second butcher knife in his box of butcher knives that's when she shoots him the first time in the back. And the way that she managed to shoot him in the back and he ended up on the bed with all the bullets in his back is because he was turning away from her to grab a second knife to throw. Hmm. That's the version of That's the story, story that is told now. That's my story, and I'm now. sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Also, in this version of the story, as told in the LA Times in 2007, he, uh, Mr. Mr. Madison, is no longer a studio accountant or auditor, as he has always been. 73 years later, in this version of the story, he is a cashier at the commissary, at the Warner Brothers commissary, a cashier at the lunch cafeteria, who specifically 
was fired by Jack Warner himself because he got into an altercation with a famous director over a 10 cent overcharge on a bunch of cigars. All right. That's why he I was going to say that's that's why he needed that $1000. <laughs> yeah. 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 See, I'm still curious about the the whole thought process of her saying that uh he was a stranger in her house i'm just wondering if they were into like role playing and uh he was supposed <laughs> to be the stranger and now she's she's so good at it that she's sticking to it even through a trial oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> that that's amazing that's amazing but she says that given that i'd been married four or five times that i and um that my attorneys felt that if I went with a story that my husband was abusive, that nobody was going to believe it. Um, and I think beyond that, no, but they felt that no one was going to believe it because there was so much physical evidence that he was a not drunk, b shot in the back in his bed, etc. Um, the story goes that he got in an altercation with director Alfred Green and was fired by none other. Than Warner himself. Now, I, I spent 13 years working at a movie studio, and I can tell you that the most famous head of the movie studio, Warner of Warner Brothers, he does not eat in the cafeteria with the rest of the plebeians who, and then have to stand in line and wait for this cashier to check him out, which would have had to have been the scenario. Because if Warner himself wasn't there, there's no way that the studio head is the one who fires a cafeteria cashier. That's just, that just there, there's mm-hmm. no world in which that happens. So this story that she tells, the story of what really happened, that her her husband was wildly abusive and unfaithful and that she killed him in self-defense lest he uh, throw enough butcher knives at her to, to kill her. And her story is both, you know, to the masses, sympathetic, and also, in, in a sense, romantic, not in, the, not in like a romantic love sense, but in sort of a, a swashbuckling, incredible story sense. And it really captures the imagination of the public who already didn't want to hang a woman. And that increases the pressure on Governor Merriman to uh, commute her death sentence, which he does. Her death sentence becomes a life sentence. And a few years later, there's a new governor, Governor Olson, who again commutes her sentence to just a 15-year sentence. And in 1943, having served nine years in prison for the admitted murder of her husband, she is released on parole. Wow. Yeah. She's released on parole. And in 1944, she marries either her fifth or sixth husband. Um, I I say fifth or sixth because according to the most of the newspapers from the time, it, it it would have been her fifth. But according to the Times, the LA Times in 2007, it was her sixth husband, a man named John Wagner. And she is married to him from 1944 until 1953, when at the age of 58, she dies of a stroke. So, Quite a life. 
it is quite a lot. I mean, she almost feels like a like a legend of the old west or something. You know, like an it's Annie Oakley meets meets Pecos Bill, some kind of a, a just a American legend. I mean, there. I mean, we have these three stories told ostensibly by that we have the story that was tried in court. We have the story that Nellie tells. And then we have the story told in the LA Times and by a lecturer at a university who writes a book on the subject. So, you know, we should probably assume that all of these people are truthful and researched. And yet the stories are so wildly different that that's why I call it a game of telephone. It, it, it almost starts to feel like of course she existed, but it's almost like, did she ever exist, or is she a product of our collective zeitgeist, a sort of American tall, tall tale <laughs> figure? Yeah. You know? um, and, and it's also uh, remarkable, because she clearly, Nellie, must have had just phenomenal charisma of some kind, because... You know, she one of her ex-husbands, who she had also fired a gun at, uh, came to help defend her in court. Um, she, upon being released from prison for admitted, admittedly murdering her last husband with five bullet holes in the back, she marries another man uh, less than a year after her release. So hmm. I, I, she might, plus she was beloved by all of the matrons in the women's prison. She was something of a folk hero to the American public. So I, I, I can only imagine that she had some kind of almost, um, gosh, it sounds wrong to say magical powers because it feels like I'm indirectly calling her a witch, which I'm not, uh, given that this could have been a witch hunt, but she must, she must have had some ama amazing magnetism, I would think, yeah. because she captured the imagination of the public. She captured the imagination of future uh, romantic loves who knew that she was an admitted murderer. She uh, gained the help of exes who knew she was a murderer, potentially. Um, it's just a, it's a remarkable story of a person who, who, who everyone despite everything, seem to, seem to just love, for back of a, lack of a better word. Quite the tale. So, Jerry, uh, do you have a kind of murdery story you want to tell us? I probably have something that fits a little more on topic than what you would probably think I would do. So right. we're going to go back uh, about eight years ago, possibly nine. At the time, I was doing stand-up comedy full-time. And I was also doing, uh, I was a, a, a appointed process server in the, the Louisville, Kentucky area. So I handled not only Jefferson County when it comes to summonses or subpoenas, but also for the U.S. District Courts. So I could go anywhere in the country and serve uh, subpoenas if need be. Wow. Well, I had one. I had to cross the bridge and go over to southern Indiana. It was about an hour and a half away from, from Louisville, where I lived at the time. And I, I decided to take my wife over there. This These things pretty much, I, I didn't really, for the most part, deal with anything dangerous. Most of these summonses that I would deliver would be credit card bills or hospital bills where they had filed lawsuit and they were going to try to garnish the, the person involved. And I just had to serve them the paperwork. But we would get subpoenas that sometimes would be a little more, but it was never anything like the cops should be handling. I was nothing like that. This particular day, it was a subpoena 
delivered and that involved a lawsuit from an automobile accident that had happened, I think, like three years earlier. And it was in another state. I think it came from Texas, if I remember correctly. So I get the subpoena, and I drive out to the house. There's nobody home, so I leave a card. And my business card actually has, you know, it had all the acronyms and and, uh, accolades, everything on there. So, you know, it had my title, process server, U.S. District Courts. So it's obvious what it is. And I wrote on the back, hey, give me a call. So they give me a call and set up a time for me to come out. I think it was like 6 p.m. that evening. And this was probably 1 o'clock. So I asked my wife, I'm like, hey, I'm just going to run out there. I'd already talked to them. They were completely cool with it. Tell me to come out, which is usually the case when I left a card. People would call me and tell me to come out, and it was no big deal. So I, I tell my wife, okay, they want me to come out at 6 o'clock. Come on and go with me because, you know, it's an hour and a half drive, and it was already 6, six o'clock since I had to come out there. So we went ahead and went together. So I get to the house. Uh, the gentleman's outside on a lawnmower, one of the uh, riding lawnmowers, and uh, gets off, shakes my hand, and uh, he says, uh, just go ahead and pull all the way up if you would. And the way this driveway was set up, it was kind of out, in, not really in the woods, but it was a little more rural in the fact that the houses weren't right on top of each other. And at the end of his driveway, there was some stacked up wood. Uh, there was, uh, you know, just some other stuff. So when you got up there, there was no going forward. You stopped at the end of it, and that, that was it. You had to back out. So you were so getting boxed ahead. in, basically. They well, that's what ended up. up happening because he <laughs> then nonchalantly backs the, after we get out of the car, he not, he was cleaning his lawnmower. He gets off now and he's cleaning it off. He's wiping it. Well, then he gets up and he just nonchalantly parks it behind our car. Oh boy. Then his wife comes out oh, of the house no. <laughs> with a video camera and they start giving us this lecture about, we're not going anywhere We've got no business being on their property. And, you know, of course, I'm going through the, I've talked to you guys earlier today. You told me to come back. You know what the situation is. Well, you're going to stay here until my friend from the sheriff's department gets here. And I'm like, good, call the sheriff's department because I've got every right to be here. I'm serving a federal subpoena. And so this went on, and and his wife's filming us, and they're telling us they're just going on like they're these big conspiracy theorists or something. And it's almost like something that you would see, you know, in in, in some of these documentaries uh, out in the woods with these people that have their little cults or whatever going on. Oh, my God. You know, they're telling us we're the enemies. We've got no business being there. They can't believe that we're there. And, And I'm like, I'm starting to lose my temper. And, you know, I eventually told these, these these people, I'm like, you know what, you're going to let us out or I'm going to call the police myself, which I'd already uh, started to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, but I didn't have any phone service. Go, go figure. Ugh. And I was I was so pissed off about this that I ended up calling Sprint because I was constantly having problems with Sprint at the time. <laughs> and I ended up calling them <laughs> saying, dude. Your phone service, crappy phone service, is one thing, but now I was in a dangerous situation and I couldn't call the police. Oh, you know, but no. anyway, long story short. Oh my God! So this guy keeps going. I tell him, I said, "Look, you know, I'm gonna. I, this is this is. You know, you're holding us hostage. You're holding us against the law. You know, against our will. This is against the law. You can't do this. No." Nope, I'm not holding you against your will. You're just going to stay here till the sheriff gets here, and then we're going to talk about it. Uh. And so he couldn't get a hold of the sheriff. He kept trying. He kept trying. 
and uh, he'd left messages for him. Well, eventually, after about 30 minutes, he went ahead and said, you can go ahead and go. I can't get a hold of the sheriff's department. Once I get a hold of the sheriff's department and they tell me this is okay, then you can come back. So he moves the, the lawnmower. We back out of the driveway. We start going down this, this little country road. And not even five minutes up the road, here comes a sheriff's car passing us up. So I, <laughs> we we stop oh, and flag the uh, guy wow. down. And then we tell him what's happening. He's like, you got to be kidding me. He said, he said, whoever the guy was, he knew who he was. It wasn't the guy he was trying to get, but I guess they sent somebody. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, let's go up there together, and we're going to get it straightened out. And then we drove up there with him. He basically lectured the guy about what you can and can't do. <laughs> and the guy signed the paperwork, and we left. But, I mean, for wow. something that should have been so oh routine, that turned into kind of a kind of a murdery story. <laughs> that is very scary. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's not Very. a situation I would want to be in. Not at all. Did you know what, what they were being served for? Yeah, it was uh, uh, somebody was, was suing it? them over a car accident from like three years earlier. Oh, That's right, car accident. But, yeah. but, but, it, but it had become a federal case at this point. Wow. Well, it's only Boy. a federal case oh, because man. they lived in a different city. So it really wasn't as much a federal case as it ah. was that they had to have somebody... Uh, when anytime you cross state lines with a subpoena, it has to be listed as a federal document. So it mm. wouldn't it wouldn't I, that it I was see. like something the FBI was interested in. It was only because they were in a different state and they needed me to be able to serve it. Yeah, th- th- that's definitely scary though to be tr- to be bas- essentially trapped there. And then thank goodness, uh, thank goodness the wife didn't walk out of the house with a shotgun. Thank goodness she was only shooting you with a video camera, right? Whew. Right, and they weren't extremely threatening, <laughs> but they were loud and belligerent. I never really felt like that my life was in danger. And I would have handled it a whole lot different if my wife hadn't been there. But that's what made it a little more concerning that we mm. just both happened to be there. But the filming it and everything just, I don't know what they were expecting or what they thought they were going to catch on film. But, but it, they they literally seemed like these anti-government conspirators that would be living up in the hills or the mountains or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. I would be afraid that once they'd sort of told you you were trespassing, that they would try to goad you into doing something that would give you and give them an excuse to shoot you or something. You know that that that's what's really kind of scary about that story to me. Yeah, <laughs> I've served. Who, <laughs> I served for uh, over seven years, and I had probably served thousands of papers and subpoenas, and that's the only time I really had a. Uh, a situation where I had any kind of fear that something might go awry. Wow. Well, that's a pretty good track record then. Yeah, you got a splendid record. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, I man. had some people that were ticked off that, that were not happy <laughs> that I was there, and I've, I've had them grab the paperwork from me and try to tear it up and stuff like that, but I never felt threatened. Right. Well, and it seems like you said these were tinfoil hat people and, and probably not terribly bright. I mean, the uh, the uh, I'm going to trap the subpoena server with my tractor until a law enforcement officer shows up is not that's not a, a, a logical <laughs> equation that I would put together, you know. <laughs> I guess I think being out in the kind of in the country like that where they know the people, they just kind of figured that and then in the end, that's really kind of what happened anyway. I mean, they just basically you can't you know you can't do that and you know, so I mean, in the end, I would have had to press charges or something for anything right. to happen. So, right, wow. right, wow, wow. 
Man, you're a brave man, though. I definitely would have, I definitely would have felt myself pucker a little bit in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, speaking of speaking of people that uh, make plans that are maybe not the brightest, um, I think that leads us right into our third story. Uh, that would be the story of Casmer and Ferguson. Let's hear it. It's early February 1932, and 28-year-old Lebeck's short-order cook is manning the griddle at a restaurant in town when he suddenly leaves his job in the middle of the shift to go for a walk in the nearby mountains. Could it have been because Sheriff R.L. Hill and deputies Bud Sherman and Al Renfro were looking for him? Let's find out as we trek into the tragic comedy of Casmer and Ferguson. Why did he suddenly leave his job in the middle of a shift and take off into the mountains? Well, when he comes down out of the mountains, sheriff's waiting there for him, and they ask Casmer that exact question. They say, so Bud, you know, you're a cook here at the restaurant in town. What's with, uh, what's with just running out, running out on your job to go for a walk? And Casmer's reply is, well, you know, I, I often have these spells come over me where I, I just need to get a bit of exercise. And when I do, I, I, you know, I, got, I got bees in my bonnet, I got ants in my pants, and <laughs> I, it, it's, it's really quite common for me to just, uh, just leave work and go, go for a hike in the mountains around Lebec. Where You guys, you, you've probably all been uh, more or less to the grapevine um, at some point on on a road trip uh, approaching Los Angeles or leaving it and you know that these are those are not exactly mountains where you think to yourself oh boy that nature is just so beautiful and hospitable what i really need to do in the middle of the afternoon is go for a hike through these desert mountains full of rattlesnakes grizzly bears and and just you know hot or extremely cold weather um, and so they go oh yeah okay so you just needed some exercise they said well we you know we wanted to tell you that the Bank of America in Tipton which was a town about an hour away from Lebec it was robbed yesterday afternoon of about eleven hundred dollars in silver money because again this was a this was a 1932 so mm-hmm. you know silver money was much more common uh, currency than maybe today and, and they and he goes oh really the bank was robbed and they said they said yeah yeah it was um but great news we we found over half the money <laughs> to which okay uh, you know and you have to and, I bet and, he's thinking so, whoops <laughs> well it's funny he goes yeah, because two men robbed the bank, right? They tell uh-huh. him we found over half the money, and his reply is, well, gosh, I'm sure happy to hear that. <laughs> no, you know, he's maybe he's so clever he's playing dumb, or, or maybe he doesn't. it doesn't occur to him that maybe the half the money they found was his. Right. Um, <laughs> he's like, oh, wow, sucks for my, uh, my unnamed partner who we haven't yet mentioned. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Here's what happens the day of the robbery. Casmer goes to visit a friend of his in Bakersfield, and he says, "Hey man, can I borrow your car?" You know, and uh, the guy says, "Sure." He says, "Because he said, 'Can I borrow your car for ten minutes?'" 
And the guy says, oh, sure. You know, of course, this was 1932, but, uh, so there was no Uber. But I'm pretty sure that uh, the friend wishes he could have told Kazmer, hey, just take an Uber. Because that 10 minutes turns into eight hours later that the car hmm. gets returned. Can either of you guess exactly which car Kazmer was borrowing from the friend in Bakersfield? No clue. It was the getaway car for the bank robbery. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> so, wow. he borrows a car from his friend that he says he's going to return in 10 minutes that he then goes and uses for a bank robbery. So, he's got a pissed off friend whose car has disappeared for eight hours who knows exactly who he is. Um, so, these guys go in. And they rob this bank, and they, but they tie. You got you know that twine, twine that's like thin, sort of old sailor rope, the kind that you might have in your muckroom, but that like unravels as soon as you want to use it. That that kind of <laughs> sure, almost yeah. like garden twine, right. right? Right. So they they tie everybody in the bank up with this garden twine. This, this like skinny unraveling rope and then they managed to steal their $1,100 worth of silver coins and, and sort of get away in the getaway car but the, their, their tie-up job and the twine itself is you know you can kind of rip that stuff apart everybody basically escapes from their from their tied up situation immediately and calls the cops more or less right away hmm. uh, meanwhile meanwhile Casmer, eight hours later, returns the car to his friend, <laughs> who's pissed off. He's like, what the fuck? You said ten minutes. It's eight hours later. <laughs> and not only does he return the getaway car to his now angry friend, inside that getaway car, he leaves a pair of his own overalls with the rest of the twine that was not used in tying up bank <laughs> employees in the front pocket of the Osh of the grown man's Oshkosh bagosh. Uh, wow. <laughs> and one of the easily traceable silver coins from the bank robbery uh, in between the seats that like fell out of his pocket in between the seats is also in the car. Genius. Yeah. So right. <laughs> So and and the bank employees at the trial testify that they also recognized the two guys and knew who they were. But even if they, <laughs> yeah, it's not wow, clear that even, they even better. It's not clear that they even wore masks. I mean, maybe they just tied some twine around their eyes, like some kind of 1932 Geordie LaForge. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so you know, the the police trace the getaway car to the pissed off friend's house. And they say, you know, this was the car used in a bank robbery. And he goes, what the fuck? My buddy told me he was going to take the car for 10 minutes. And he comes back eight hours later. And the police say, uh, what's with these overalls and twine in your car? <laughs> and the guy's like, wait, what? And he he's like, oh, those must be my friends. And they say, well, who's your friend? And the guy says, well, it's it's Casper, right? <laughs> So the police go to Casmer's house. They get a warrant. They search the house. They find half the money. <laughs> and wow. that is why they, they're coming to look for Casmer. He must have gotten some kind of a heads up. And that's why he ditches the restaurant. Genius. Absolute geniuses, yeah. both of them. <laughs> it, it re I really did feel like it was Lloyd and Harry from Dumb and Dumber, but just not, not as lucky. <laughs> yeah, pretty so, much. 
Wow. So, so, th- so they go to trial. They're going to trial. Kazmer cops a deal with the DA to plead guilty and to testify against Ferguson um, in, in exchange for a lighter sentence. Uh, again, mm, no honor among thieves. Y- yes, but not that smart of a guy because he's not getting no sentence at all. And however long his sentence is, both he and Ferguson are going to be going to San Quentin, except that he will have just squealed on the stand. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, like, just so I can get shanked with a toothbrush in prison, you know? And so the day comes for him to testify against Ferguson, and he gets up on the stand, and the DA questions him, and he refuses to say a word. You know, he, he, he suddenly got smart. He refuses mm. to say a word. He won't say anything at all. They ask him all these questions. He clams up. And, and, you know, the DA says, well, isn't it true that the reason you're refusing to testify right now is that your life was threatened in jail last night? And again, Kazmer won't say anything. So finally, the DA's frustrated, and he's like, well, you know, you're all right. You know, you're going to jail anyway. He says, but let me ask you this. Will you answer this question? And, and he shows Casmer the gun that Casmer used to hold up the bank. And Casmer says, and he says, is, is, this, is this the gun you used to hold up the bank? And Casmer takes a look at it and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. He goes, it, it looked bigger the first time I saw it, but that's the one. <laughs> I was like... If that's not a setup for a that's what she said joke, then <laughs> right. I've, I've never heard one. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Uh, I almost what wish a dumbass. I know. I almost wish the prosecutor had said, yeah, for the record, Your Honor, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,. Now we're going to move on to a quick little segment we like to call Five Star Review of the Week, where we basically pick pick a review and read it just to sort of say thank you to our, our wonderful listeners who take the time to write the reviews. And this year's review is from... This year's? Some, I'm, this year's. Yeah, yeah, we've only gotten one. We've one only gotten one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we've only gotten one review this year. So I was going to say thank you, Mr. Ditkovich, but I should say thank you very, very much, Mr. Ditkovich, for being our one review this year. Okay, so <laughs> five star review, and it says, I like this show. What can I say? It's it's a good podcast. What more do you want? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't sound like he had a, a gun held to his head as he wrote it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he did, it would be right on brand. <laughs> Oh my gosh! No, but I, you know what I kind of liked about that. You know, as a for a writer, I think sometimes Ernest Hemingway is the gold standard of being able to communicate the most with the greatest economy of words. And I think that uh, Mr. Ditkovich uh, did that for us. He said, "What could I say? It's a good podcast. What do you want from me?" <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So Jerry, I wanted to say, you know. As I mentioned, it was so fun being on your show, and I, I'm so excited because I believe um, the episode I'm on came out this Sunday, right? Correct. Awesome. So everybody, go listen to Hillbilly Horror Stories. It's an awesome show. 
without me, by the way. You don't need me to make this an awesome show. Hopefully I didn't detract from anything, but make sure you go find Hillbilly Horror Stories available anywhere you get your podcasts. It's a phenomenal show. Uh, And then you guys are, I imagine, all over social media, Jerry, too. Where can people find you on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, wherever? I would just say the easiest way is just go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. It's got access to all of our social media on there. Just click it, and you'll go straight to it. Uh, Google, you can find us. We're all, all over Google, so if you just uh, do a search, you'll find us. But on our website, we've also got all of our live events that we're doing. We've got uh, my book that's for sale, Hillbilly Horror Stories from Hell to High Water. Uh, I want to touch on that real quick. Please, the, please, the please. The book is, on, it is written in three parts. The very first part, it's almost like three mini books into one. Wow. But the very first part is my paranormal experiences growing up. The second part is about my divorce and attempted suicide and dealing with depression. Wow. Oh and then gosh, the third part is how we tie the first two parts into Hillbilly Horror Stories. And we include about 20 or 25 messages at the end that people have sent us telling us how it made a difference in their life, either, whether they decided not to commit suicide because of the show or something they heard, or whether they uh, uh, sought out some kind of medical help for the depression. So, uh, But that's on there. And then uh, we have a cruise that we're doing uh, next September 2022. We've already had 200 people sign up for it. Holy it's going from uh, Miami to uh, the Bahamas for four days. And we're going to be doing a live show on there with some of our podcast friends. And, <laughs> wow. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, all, that's all that's amazing. on the website. Very guys- cool. <clears throat> So in case you don't want to take my word for it, because I'm a source often of, of misinformation with an authoritative voice, in case you're wondering just how good Hillbilly Horror Stories is, they are selling out a carnival cruise ship. <laughs> so just so that people can come hear them do their podcast live. Amazing. Uh, this is a hell of a, I mean, my gosh. This is a hell of a show their show uh please please go listen to it i am honored and thrilled to be on it this week and uh you know jerry i'm honored and thrilled that you you uh, agreed to join us thank you so much for being here it's been an yeah absolute thank you so much blast. for being here jerry uh, it was an honor well for on-air producer adam volrich sean christensen and brendan hubbard from criminal content and the kind the prodigiously talented the imitable jerry Polly. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and this has been Kinda Murdery. This is Kinda Murdery, Ghost Towns of the Mojave Desert, presented by Criminal Content. You can find us online at kindamurdery.com and on all social media at kindamurdery. Email us at contact at kindamurdery.com. Listen to us on all your favorite podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google, and more. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about the show. <laughs>